Genetics Podcast Episode 10. Spatial Organization of the Human Genome. Welcome to the 10th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. The topic of this episode is Spatial Organization of the Human Genome. Our special guest for this episode is Wendy Bigmar from the University of Edinburgh. And I'm happy to talk to you now during the EMBO workshop Chromatin and Epigenetics. Thank you, Wendy, for joining me today. Thanks, Stefan, for the invitation. Uh, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience because uh, they might not know you. Um, you obtained your PhD from the University of Edinburgh uh, for your research on analyzing nucleic acid sequences from the Y chromosome of humans. And there you were supervised by Howard Cook. You then moved on and did your postdoc at the MRC Human Genetics Unit also in Edinburgh. Yep. Edinburgh, sorry. <laughs> from, and from 1996 to 2008, you were a senior scientist also at the MRC in Edinburgh, and since 2009, you are now, or you were head uh, of the chromosomes and gene expression section uh, at this institute, and then you became the director of the MRC of Human Genetics Unit in yeah. 2015. I, I haven't moved around very much, yeah. have I? <laughs> I didn't want to, uh, to, yeah, to ask uh, but, you why. But, but I think that's important, because people think that they have to be mobile yeah. to progress through a career in science, and actually you don't. As you're, long as you're in you're the intellectually, right? you've got to be mobile and okay. continually asking new questions and interesting questions. But if you're in the right environment, you so, don't necessarily have to move. Yeah. So would you say that the yeah the nature of the lab and the nature of the environment is more important than the location of the lab and that you move around and you the nature of the lab is important, but the, the nature of your colleagues is very important. I think so. That environment, local okay. environment, is important. But of course, coming to meetings, to me, is my yeah. mobility, where I get to interact with people from other places in the world and get new ideas. Yeah, and get the, get the discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the f that was actually the planned first question of this interview. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, yeah, I shouldn't okay. be taking over the no, no, direction that, of questions. No, no, that's perfectly fine. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask the guest is, uh, how did you become interested in biology and then in pursuing a career in science? Ah, I, th I think I became interested in biology because my dad was a really good gardener. In fact, his first job when he left school, age 14, was a, a, as a gardener in one of these big English stately homes. And he always had a wonderful garden, so I became interested in biology through plants. Oh, okay. and, and, and still a part of me would like to be a plant biologist. <laughs> But then I think at school, I thought I wanted to become uh, a medical doctor. Um And I really loved biology. But then uh, one summer holiday, I was reading a small paperback book um, by Stephen Rose called The Chemistry of Life, oh, which yeah. was about biochemistry. And it was the first time, I don't know, something went off in my brain and you realize, oh, I didn't realize that you could try and understand biology at the level of molecules and chemistry. And, and I just found that utterly fascinated. So I decided to go and study biochemistry. Did you did you ever work on plants then? No, I've never, I've never worked on plants, um, but I, but I'm, I have a secret yearning to do so, but it's probably too late. It's never too late. Yeah, I do have a lovely garden though. So. Oh yeah, but that's, <laughs> so that's there you go. So do I do work on plants. <laughs> do you have a green thumb? So do they? I, I think I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So coming more to your science, you're doing now the spatial organization of the genome, mm. and this has been a matter of investigation for a long time. I also did some some work on that. Um, so first, the co concept of chromosome territories was proposed by Carl Rabel 
back in the 1880s. Indeed, yeah, amazing work. Yeah. Yeah. And this was, uh, yeah, that first uh, further investigated when immunofluorescence came up uh, and experiments were then done there. And in the early 2000s, you and your team also made experiments uh, in this area and found that the positioning of the chromosomes in, in the nucleus might not be random. Mm. Um, how do you did you approach this exactly? How, how what was your motivation to go into this uh, uh, area, and how did you then move on? Uh, the the this uh, experiment uh, was the result of building renovation. So okay. I, I was a human geneticist at the time, um, doing my postdoc, <coughs> uh, trying to start trying to understand the linear organization of the genome, organization okay. of genes so. along the DNA sequence, um, and. In my first independent lab, the first experiment we actually asked was, where are genes on the genome? Because there was no DNA sequence of the genome at that time. Uh, so we devised an experiment to address that. And it, it came back with the very clear answer that genes are non-uniformly distributed along chromosomes uh, and between human chromosomes as well. So my favorite example was chromosome 18 and 19, yep. two small human uh, human chromosomes. Uh, and 18, chromosome 18 is incredibly poorly populated by genes it's our most gene poor chromosome and chromosome 19 is our most gene rich and yet they're two dna molecules that are essentially the same size same about both about 85 million base pairs in length so then having that uh, result um uh, the, the building was being re re uh, renovated and I, I, my lab got sent to what was called the cytogenetics department mm -hmm. where people made metaphase chromosome spreads oh, yeah, uh, and, and banded chromosomes and, and looked down the microscope. I'd never looked down the microscope really before then. Uh, and so you, were, did, you did sequencing or what? Did yeah, I did sequencing. Yeah, I, sequencing cloning, you know, yeah. cosmic libraries, yak libraries, things like that. I was a molecular cloner. Um, Uh, but one of the cytogeneticists said, you know, have you ever seen a chromosome? And I said, no, I haven't. <laughs> no. um, and so she showed me, and it was just like, oh, my gosh, aren't they beautiful? And they've got oh, yeah. a pattern to them, bands. And so I became interested in pattern at that point. Uh, and so f the tech, the my fluorescence microscopy was just developing at that time, and fluorescence in situ hybridization technology is really developing. So then I thought, well, what, what if we paint chromosome 18 gene pool with one color? and chromosome 19, gene-rich with another colour, and hybridize them to cell nuclei, and just ask, how does the how does the cell nucleus deal with these two DNA molecules that are so different in content? Uh, and, and the resulting data was, it was one, you know, I just looked at it, I thought, oh my God, there's a pattern here. It's non, it's non-random. And the 18 was, you know, most often peripheral around the outside of the nucleus, and the 19 was in the middle. So that was the start of us investigating spatial organization of chromosome territories. You also went then on and, and I guess asked the question, what does the inactive and active part of gene-rich or gene-poor regions on the same chromosome yes. look like? Yeah, um, so it kind of focused in at smaller red scale resolution and began looking at parts of chromosomes. So asking okay. as well as, is there a non-random organization of whole chromosomes? Is there a non-random organization of so parts So was of this then the, the time when this whole looping concept emerged? Or, or no, I think looping came later on because the, the, the smaller sections of chromosomes, I think more of as the A and B compartments yeah. from high C map. So it's that kind of scale of resolution. I think people only became, became thought of loop, you know, looping at, at high resolution later on as high C maps got better higher resolution, for example. You then also show that the position of genes doesn't alter the expression of all genes but only of some maybe yeah so 
Yeah, are there genes at the periphery that are also expressed, or when they move there, do they get silenced, or how do do you envision that? Yeah, it, it it looks it looks like there's not simple rules, and, and there's, so there's a lot to learn in this space. Some genes care about where they are in the nucleus; other genes don't seem to care. And although it's quite clear that uh, being at the nuclear periphery is more conducive to being repressed or lowly expressed, you can still get decent amounts of transcription there. And we've seen RNA fish signals at the periphery. So we don't know what the rules are in terms of whether it's particular types of promoters or enhancer-driven genes that are, that give you the dis difference. Um, do you have any idea or what kind of factors influence then those um, activities, localization, or the different ones are the same ones that affect both? So we know, so we have started to try and pick apart localization in two ways. Um, so, uh, for example, we we decided we I, I'd spent oh ten years or so of my independent laboratory time just kind of cataloging the way the genome looks in different cells and differentiation. And, uh, <clears throat> although that was fun and we learned a lot of new things, at some point I became a little frustrated because all we could ever do was make correlations. Right? Yeah, not we look when the genes active, we look when the genes inactive, or the cells are stem cell or differentiated cell, and we see differences and we try to infer that they might have some functional relationship. But you can you can never prove that by just looking. So we decided we had to find ways to intervene in the system and see you know, what happens when we move a gene or activate a gene. So that's when we started, you know, uh, working ways to tether particular genes to the nuclear periphery and look at the consequences on their activity, but vice versa also develop synthetic transcription factors to try and activate a gene that's a periphery and then ask what happens. Uh, and there the, the result was very stri striking that when we synthetically activate a gene that's a periphery, first of all, you can activate it, so it's not refractory to activation, but when we activate it, the first thing it does is move off the periphery. Okay. So transcription can drive organization as well as organization influencing transcription. And so it's a, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg who comes first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, yeah. it's, it might also be different for different genes, uh, right? Indeed, it probably is. Yeah. Another thing you looked at was is enhancers. Um, and this was done in a Nature Genetics publication in 2016. We know that enhancers are usually identified by 3K27 trimet and others. Mm. But you also sh uh, yeah, looked at the modification at the globular domain. Um, could you briefly comment on that? Uh? Yeah, so, th so this is a, an example of why it's good to be at conferences. So um, I, was, I was at a conference, I can't remember where it was, because Harper, and Robert Schneider was giving a talk. Uh, so Robert works on globular domain modifications, which I wasn't aware of at all. <laughs> you know, I was just focused on histone tails. Um, and he described antibodies he generated that um, pick up acetylated lysines in the in the core of the nucleosome particles and not the tails. When, uh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. when would you, uh, at which amino acid would you define the tail and when does the ah, globular domain oh, start? Oh, what, what, good, what? Good, good question. Um, so the modifications that I think of as in the core are kind of from residue one, lysine 115 onwards. Okay. Um, and, and the interesting thing about um, and I, I listened to Rob's talk. He was he works in both yeast uh, and in mammalian systems, and he generated beautiful reagents for studying them. Uh, and uh, he said that the really interesting thing about these modifications is that they're the only histone modifications that affect transcription uh, in vitro on a chromatinized template. Because obviously, in a purified system, histone tail modifications don't matter. There's no readers. Okay. Yeah. But if you modify the globular domain. It matters to the transcription machinery in vitro because it destabilizes the nucleosome. 
So it changes the physical properties of the nucleosome. And I thought this was really interesting and was underappreciated in the gene regulation field because we've been so focused on tails and the readers of tail modifications. So uh, I suggested to Rob that we take a look at where <laughs> you would find um, modifications like 122 acetylation or K64 acetylation across the mammalian genome. And it turns out that, 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 in, that it beautifully marks enhancers. I think okay. it's an even better mark than K27 acetylation. Okay. Is there any difference from markers that are marked by the K27 trimethylation and the globular domain marked uh, enhancers? Or we think there are. There's a lot of similarity. Um, but 122 looks more specific to enhancers than to, to the body of genes, whereas K27 acetylation will spread into gene bodies. Um, we found some enhancers in ES cells that appeared to have 122 but not K27. And we're still trying to understand why that may be. Uh, because the interesting thing is that both modifications are probably catalyzed by the same enzyme. It's probably all yeah, P300. Okay. So I think this is still re in a, uh, still an emerging area of how st structural changes within the nucleosome particle might be involved in the enhancer. Might this also have to function. do with pioneer factors? Well, it could do, yes, because they, they, they obviously probably have a role in destabilizing nucleosomes as well. And just two weeks ago, you also uploaded a paper to BioArchive, um, which was titled Developmentally Regulated SSR Expression in Robust to Tot Perturbation. Was this also stuff that you, I didn't have the time, you will have a talk, I guess. Yes, I'm going to talk about that tomorrow morning. Yeah. Yeah. Would you yeah. share some, some of your yeah, uh, findings? Yeah, well done. Because so it's published anyway. Yes, <laughs> that's why it's on BioArchive, um, which, which I'm a big fan of. I put all, really? my, pap I, all my papers go up on BioArchive, yeah. But just to... to touch on that because yeah. you mentioned it uh, yeah. how is your opinion on, on that I, I, mean, I, I think it's wonderfully democratizing I find the frustration of, of publishing in the peer-reviewed literature is it's so slow you can spend a year or more trying to get your paper published so people can read it it's just about communication and your results right? yeah, so yeah. you put it on bioarchive people see it they talk about it they tweet about it they cite it in their papers uh, i think it just moves the whole of the field forward quickly yeah you can also reference it in you your grant you can yeah absolutely you can use the data so I, th I think it's fun actually yeah but but what do you think about the quality control then do you because then the quality control gets shifted backwards like one or two years because you yes. have to have the discussion and yeah. do you see a problem there or is it there may be i think we'll have to wait to find out because okay. i think it's it, It's really only taking off now, the submissions to BioArchive. But of course, a lot of the stuff that's in the peer-reviewed literature turns out to be wrong too. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> neither, neither of them are completely foolproof. And as you say, time usually tells what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. So, so back yeah. to this um, paper about TADS, topologically associated domains. So this is the result of a long-term collaboration I've, I've had in Edinburgh with a, a colleague of mine, Bob Hill, who is a developmental biologist interested in developmental gene regulation and particularly regulation of sonic hedgehog, um, this uh, very important embryonic morphogen. Um, and it's a classic example of, of developmental regulation and enhancer-driven regulation. Um, so sonic is controlled by at least 13 enhancers that we know about, each of which drives expression at a different time and place of development. So this is not super enhancers. These are individual elements that genetics says, okay, this element drives expression in this patch of cells in the brain, or this element drives expression in the limb. This element drives expression in the epithelium of the gut. Um, so uh, Bob is famous for identifying the limb enhance of a sonic hedgehog, million base pairs away from the gene it regulates. Uh, so it's a fascinating case of long-range gene regulation. And the intriguing thing about Sonic and its enhancers um, is that all the enhancers, although they can be up to a million base pairs away from the gene, they're all in the same TAD. 
as Sonic Hedgehog. So it fits everyone's the, the paradigm that tads are there to kind of constrain the activity of enhancers, to allow enhancers to communicate to the correct target gene uh, and not incorrect, inappropriate genes. Um, so it's a, which is a fantastic model, very appealing, uh, and a beautiful example that might link structure and function. Um, so we decided we'd better test this model <laughs> by uh, breaking the sonic hedgehog tad. So what Bob's lab did was to delete the tad boundaries of sonic hedgehog. In fact, there's um, so tad boundaries are usually marked by CTCF sites in particular orientations in the genome. Um, but also TADs also have some substructure within them. So there's sub-TADs and you'll find <laughs> CTCF sites that might define those. But we, so we decided to take them out one by one. Um, so on that genetic level then? Yes. Yeah, yeah just took the CTCF yeah. sites out uh, um, uh, in both uh, embryonic stem cells and also in, in mice as well. So we made mice um, homozygously missing CTCF sites. Um, and we showed by... Um, chromosome confirmation capture technologies and by imaging that we had indeed perturbed the TAD structures in the way you might assume by taking these out. So that all looked good. So uh, in, in the in the um, high C or, or in the confirmation capture, yeah. you saw that uh, the TAD was gone? Not gone because we only took one out one at a oh, time. Oh, so sorry. for example, when we took so out the left-hand boundary, we shift the boundary okay, into another to the site. Next one. Yes, yeah. to another site. So for example, we took the left-hand boundary out. So Sonic Hedgehog's right up against one end of its TAD. So we took out that boundary, and the boundary then slides in past Sonic Hedgehog to another CTCF site. So now that puts Sonic Hedgehog outside of its own TAD. Okay. All, all the enhancers are, are in the rest of the TAD. So you have a TAD boundary between the gene and the enhancer? Yes. Okay. yes. So, now, so then you ask, well, what happens um, to Sonic Hedgehog regulation in the mouse when you do that? And the answer, at least by, <laughs> by in-situ hybridization, was nothing. <laughs> you get completely normal... Um, patterns of sonic hedgehog expression in, in mouse development. And um, moreover, the mice are viable, fertile, and they look absolutely fine. They don't have a phenotype that we can detect. So we cannot detect evidence. Um, and we don't see, for example, any uh, ectopic activation of genes by enhancers when this happens either. You don't pick up strange uh, patterns. So what we've done to the TAD so far doesn't seem to perturb enhancer promoter communication. Okay. So, so the transcription in the end? The transcription, yeah. yeah. So what we we were careful in the title. We said it's it's we said it's it's robust to tad perturbations. We didn't say there's no effect whatsoever. I mean, maybe you know if we stress the mice yeah. or they're you know in the wild, there would be some subtle change in regulation, which would make them a disadvantage. But what we conclude is you don't absolutely need that tad integrity to get correct enhancer promoter interactions but and activation. Be then the function of the TADs? Ah, that's a very interesting question. So I, I, I it's it's either this that they do have some role, some subtle role, which would be important in evolutionary time, or that they they have a function. Their their TADs are very conserved, but it's not really to do with gene expression per se. It's not to do with transcription. So uh, I always like to think about evolution um, <laughs> yeah. in in trying to understand function because. What you don't want to do in evolutionary time is break the cis relationship between a gene and its enhancers. Right? You want to keep them together on the same bit of the genome. So you don't want synteny breaks between okay. the gene and the enhancer. So perhaps TADs are much more about a structural, architectural element of the genome that keeps these, these blocks of chromatin intact, 
So the prevents from getting yeah. broken, for example. Then that would, I think, that could explain what we see in the genome in the enhancers and their target genes tend to be in the same TAD. So did did you look at the, indivi the individual enhancers or did you just look at the bulk um, in, in the study? Or well, this this is just a th uh, this is a. Uh, This new model is just yeah, a thought okay. experiment, yeah. So perhaps it is, but but for for when we broke the TAD and looked at expression, we we tested all the sites, okay. the sonic hedgehog expression. So as far as we know, every enhancer is still intact. works fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So where are you going with this? <laughs> <laughs> so we now we want to push it further. Um, so now we you know we took out individual CTCF sites. Now we want to combine them. Oh yeah. If we, if we just pile them up and take them all away uh, and completely get rid of the TAD, will that really give us a phenotype? Um, And then we want to really um, go in more quantitatively and look at transcription itself of the sonic okay. hedgehog and see if there's a slight delay or a change in the levels. Um, and we also in the lab, a favorite tool is to, is to go back to our, our artificial transcription factors. So we can do synthetic activation of sonic hedgehog from in oh, the yeah. TAD and, and in the disrupted TADs and really see what's going on. So I think it's the start of unpicking what a TAD might be about. Do you think there is also another way of regulating the TAD than CTCF? Is there any other factor? or? Yeah, um, it's, yeah. not all TADs in our genome have CTCF sites at, at the edges. A, a lot of them do. Um, Polycomb makes very nice TADs uh, by itself, and it looks like the, the, the promoters of highly expressed genes can be TAD boundaries as well. So I, I, I'm sure that there'll be other ways. If we, if we assume that TADs are made by cohesin-mediated loop extrusion, which I think the evidence is good uh, that, that they are. There's probably other things in the genome that can stall that and stop cohesin moving down, and that would okay. make TAD boundaries. So, yeah, I'm sure there'll be other things. You also had a look at aging and senescence and also heterochromatin. <laughs> I also worked on uh, senescence, so yeah. I'm also interested in this, and this was also published 2015 yeah. in Genes and Death. Um, how is then chromatin behaving during senescence yeah. and maybe also aging. Yeah, so uh, I've, I've always really loved um, uh, the work from Thomas Kramer and Irina Solovay in yeah. the uh, rods, uh, pho the, the photoreceptors of nocturnal mammals, where they showed the radial organization of the genome that we normally see, you know, chromosome 18 around the middle, 19 in the middle, uh, 18 around the edge, 19 in the middle, gets completely inverted. So it's still radial, but it's back to front. Okay. And the heterochromatin goes to the middle and the active genes are on the outside. I think, well, that's incredibly cool. Um, but really difficult to study in vivo because it only happens in a few defined cell types postnatally in a living animal. So tough to manipulate. Uh, and I was thinking, well, are there, are there any examples I can think of where something as dramatic as that might happen? Uh, and at uh, my institute, the, the MRC Human Genetics Unit, happens to be in the same building as the Cancer Research Centre where one Carlos Acosta works on oncogene-induced senescence. And so, knowing his work, I became aware of senescence-associated heterochromatin foci, which are a bit like rod photoreceptor cells. The heterochromatin is in the middle of the nucleus <laughs> rather than around the outside of them. And, of course, this is a, an experimentally controllable and tractable system. So, actually, we teamed up with, with uh, JC to, to investigate this and what might cause it. Um, And so why would heterochromatin be released from the nuclear periphery? So in, in the rod photoreceptor cells, Irina Solovay showed very nicely that that's because you lose the glue that keeps the heterochromatin at the periphery, which is lamin A, lamin B receptor. Now, that does, that's, that's not the case in senescence. You still have lamin A around the periphery. So that didn't seem to be oh, sorry, the, right, uh, the right model. 
And then we, we were thinking for a while, well, maybe there's some other nuclear membrane protein that changes during senescence and releases heterochromatin. And um, we were pondering that in a lab meeting. And then I thought, no, this is getting awfully complicated. Can't yeah. be right. I like simplicity. We've completely forgotten that there's more to the nuclear periphery than just the lamina. There's, there's holes in it. There's nuclear <laughs> pores. And usually over nuclear pores, there's no heterochromatin. Yeah, because like you need to get the RNA out of Presumably, yeah, but it's quite striking. The you know, classic electron microscopy shows there's a gap in the heterochromatin where the pore is. So it looks like the pore physically excludes heterochromatin. So if you changed pores in some way, could you change heterochromatin distribution? So if the number of the density of pores in the nuclear membrane went up, you would increase the surface area which is excluding heterochromatin and decrease the surface area that attracts it. And would that be enough? Would that tip in the balance of forces be enough to give you reorganization and it turned out actually it was yeah so we found in senescence the nuclear pore density went way up okay and, so you uh, and we were able to show that's what's responsible for for formation of these sap foci and what does cause this increase in nuclear pores oh well, that's a that's a, a good uh question that <laughs> I mean, is I mean, not we know, answered uh, yeah. we know that um repeats are increasingly Transcribed maybe in, in aging and senescence. Yeah. Um, would, would that induce maybe more of the pores being made to get I, rid of the RNA? Uh, no, again, I think it's simpler than that. So, if you, so one thing we know about pores is they're incredibly stable. Okay. Once they're inserted in the membrane, they kind of stay there for the whole cell cycle. Uh, and so uh, reading the literature, it became apparent that what, what quiescent cells do, which are not going to divide, um, is they down-regulate the transcription of nuclear porins, the components of the pores, so because they know they don't need to make more pores, so they stop transcribing. So you end up with a fairly stable nuclear pore density. Senescent cells don't do that. They don't realize they're not going to divide anymore, so they keep transcribing nuclear porins, oh, translating them, and making nuclear pores. I think it's as simple as that. It's a failure of regulation of nuclear pore density. Oh, that's very interesting. So that would also lead to, at some point... Instable nuclei, right? Poss it's possible, yeah. In the experimental system we've used, we've, put, we've probably not pushed it far enough because we've used oncogene-induced senescence. Yeah. So it's a very acute senescence. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, I think, untapped area of biology, actually, the control of nuclear pore number. Very interesting. Um, one thing I, I found very interesting, because you once published a review or a review article about the comparison between confirmation capture methods and mm. fish and immunofluorescence and, and yes. how do they compare and, yeah. And, 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 and yeah how you can compare them and how they deliver maybe different yeah. uh, results. How, yeah. how did you do that and, or what is the conclusion that you draw? So um, I think the conclusion we made at the time perhaps was a little shocking to the field but I think the field's um, got more used to the idea now is that for the most part they tell you the same thing And certainly at coarse grain levels of re resolution, like where, where are compartments and things like that, that's all fine. But when you get to high resolution, I think you can pick up differences. And because chromosome confirmation capture is not a ruler, whereas imaging is a ruler. You literally you know, measure the distance, physical distance yeah. between two sites. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, because for high C or all the chromosome confirmation capture methods, you know, A, it's cross-linked. So I think the cross-linkability of different bits of the genome could be different. Um, the IF is also 
yeah fixed at yeah, least. No, fi- yeah no it's fixed as well but 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 you're not extracting anything yeah. or doing anything with it you're just looking yeah um and uh in in, in high c you know you, you, there's a stage where you add detergents to strip off the chromatin before you do the ligation so you've got a lot of free ends floating around of dna so you can i think you can get cross links between two loci that are not physically you know on top of each other within 50 nanometers or so they could probably be 100 maybe 200 nanometers away from each other and you'll still get an interaction but of course if you imaged that you would see that they were separate so i think it's at that high level of resolution there can be subtle differences which can be really interesting to explore we'll tell you something about the nature of the interactions you capture by high c so you're saying that one always needs to control by the other i'm a great fan of orthogonal methods to to look at the same problem from two different ways because every method's got its limitations yeah, and problems yeah. a good control is always needed absolutely yeah. would you would you say that um, the methods improved over since you published this or in the last years did you know um high c methods have certainly improved I and mean, they've become much more high resolution um, there have been subtle changes uh, in the methodologies fishes fishes also improved because now people have w- you moved away from using large probes to oligonucleotide based probes yeah, so you can pick up really small bits of the genome and you can you know, more colors and of course the big thing that's happened to imaging is super resolution optical imaging which uh, we've taken great advantage of yeah. and it's also now a new building here yeah <laughs> yes yeah no well, well yeah, yeah embl has been a pioneer of super yeah. resolution yeah so in the past 28 minutes we have uh, taken a journey through your scientific career yeah. so this uh, will be my last question can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or what we might have missed but which we did not touch on now and what you would like to investigate then going on from now well i, I I'm, i'm very excited by the senescent thing I, I it's the first time in my career i've seen such dramatic 3d organization changes in such a short time window in my head i'd always thought that changes in spatial organization would be relatively slow Yeah, well, you're looking at oncogene-induced in yeah, a sense, which yeah. is maybe a little bit artificial. But, but I'm surprised that heterochromity can move such big yeah. distances so quickly. So I'm, I'm very interested in, I think, that question and also the questions we have about Enhancer, that the, our most provocative current finding, on bioarchive but not yet published, <laughs> uh, is that we don't see evidence that enhancers and promoters actually physically loop and touch each other. So Do you mean the DNA or also the... Proteins ah, well, we only look at the DNA, yeah. of course, yeah. So, so we see them often move apart from each other. Uh, so they can be hundreds of nanometers of, of away from each other, which I, th- I, th- I think could fit very well with some of the kind of movements towards the phase separation condensate models of transcription and regulation. But I think both that question and the heterochromatin reorganization questions requires us to move into live cell imaging. Yeah. So I th- to me, that's the most exciting direction that I'd like to go in. Uh, what, what now interests me personally is that did, did you compare the oncogene-induced senescence with replicative senescence or is it just too long to wait for the replicative yeah, senescence we, to happen? We, we haven't. It's less tractable. Uh, and as far as I can tell, uh, in cell lines, in cell culture, uh, when you do replicative senescence, you don't form these he- the internal heterochromatin foci. So it doesn't seem to be the same kind of senescence. So I think we're going to have to go in vivo and find yeah, other okay. situations in the animal where you see these foci being formed. So thank you very much, Mindy, Wendy, for your time and uh, for being here. Yep, okay. This was the 10th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes and Spotify. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, motivations at activemotif.com slash blog. 
Thanks for listening and stay tuned.